Hey, I'm so very glad you're here. Welcome to the Foundry. My name is Seth, and we are in week three of our study called Vaikra. We've been studying through the book of Leviticus. We've gone through chapters eight and nine. We've talked about all kinds of different stuff. We've talked about like God taking Aaron and his sons and, and ordaining them and setting them aside and then like, uh, like consecrating this, the sanctuary, the, the tent of meeting, and then God is using these men in this place to be able to teach this entire group of people, these former slaves, like what it means to, lo- or like what it means to live out a different way. Like there's a whole new way to order the world and God says, I'm gonna use these guys in this place to teach this group of people what that looks like. So this week, I wanna expand a little bit, a lot, about the role of the priest. And then next week, we'll get into chapter 10 and we'll wrap the whole thing up. So eight, nine, and then this week are all kind of a build up for chapter 10. And chapter 10 is really fascinating, so I hope that you'll plan to be here next week. So this week, I wanna talk about the priest a little bit more in detail. So here's kind of um, our talking points for today, in case you're gonna follow along. Here's our talking points. Uh, You gotta start somewhere. Then we're gonna talk about tension. And then we're gonna talk about the ordinary, talk about the elevation of the ordinary, talk about risk versus reward. And then we'll talk about gospel. Okay, so you gotta start somewhere. If you go back to Exodus chapter 19, God has pulled the people, he's rescued the people out of Egypt, and then he brings them to Mount Sinai and he gives them this this mission and purpose and their identity for who they are to be. Exodus chapter 19, verse five and six. You get into verse six. You will be for me a kingdom of priests in a holy nation. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God says, this is what you're gonna do. It will be through you and how you live and move and act in this world that people will know who I am and what I am like. So the question then becomes, like in the book of Leviticus, well, how do you take an entire nation of people and make them into priests, right? Especially when the priesthood is yet to be established. How do you create an entire nation of priests? Well, how would you transform any sort of people group, any sort of organization, any sort of community, any sort of office? How would you transform any sort of group of people? Well, my guess is is you would start with a small group of people that you could get on your side that would embody and embrace these new ideas, a group of people that will be the flesh and blood, uh, that will give flesh and blood to these new values so that other people can see what this new thing is all about, like up close and personal, like how this is whole laid, li- uh, lived out. So how do you create an entire nation of priests? Well, you gotta create some priest. In order for everyone to be a priest, somebody has to be a priest first, right? Uh, in fact, you see Jesus doing the same thing because he shows up onto the scene and he starts calling people to him and he has this mission about, he says, go into all the world and make disciples. And then what does he do? Because in order for everyone to be disciples, you gotta have some disciples. And so Jesus starts his ministry and he calls these 12 guys to him and he says, let me teach you what this looks like so then you can go and teach others what this looks like. So in order for everyone to be a priest, you gotta start somewhere, which means these first someones are Aaron and his sons. Now, When it comes to being a priest uh, or being a priestly presence in the world, it means that you're going to have to learn uh, to live with some sort of tension, right? So let's talk about tension. Um, As a priest, your role is to be like the in-between. So there's uh, how the world is, and then there's how the world could be or should be. There's how people are, and there's the potential for what somebody can become, 
right? Uh, if you are um, a teacher, a preacher, a coach, a boss, a business owner, a parent, a spouse, you know and have experienced this tension. As a parent, you see, the, you see your kid where they're at, their, their, their goods, their bads, their flaws, their whatever, uh, but you also see the potential for who they can become, right? You know this. Uh, ladies, when you met and married your man, you knew kind of where he was. You knew he was a bachelor that left his socks on the ground and let the dishes pile so high, but you could see the potential and with a, the right training and the proper guide, he could be something great, right? You know this tension. This is a priestly tension. So the role of the priest is to stand in the in-between. Um, it, it, it's to look at where things are and to see the possibilities of what could be. But along with this tension, there has to be patience. There has to be wisdom. Along with this tension, there's going to be times of frustration. If you are continually telling, telling your spouse how wrong they are, right? they won't. You got to be patient. You got to use wisdom. Sometimes they'll fail you. Sometimes, as a, if you're a coach, you know this. You got to live with this tension. Uh, you're trying to train this player to get them to be what the team needs. Sometimes, so, so as you live with this tension, you, you want to celebrate the good moments, you want to celebrate the steps forward, and then you want to give grace and patience when they step in the wrong direction, when things go a bit backwards. So the role of the priest is the same in between. At the tent of meeting in the book of Leviticus, the priest stands between the sacred and the common. Their job is to show the people what it's like to have a more expanded and sacred vision for all of life. Right, so as these people are, are traveling through the camp, what you see is that there's two spaces, right? We talked a little bit about this. There's the common, which is like the camp area that they're setting up tents as they're traveling, and then there's the sacred, which is the tent of meeting, which sits in the middle of the camp. And so the common is the what is, the sacred is the what could be. And the idea is that the people would come from the common, the what is, and they would step into the sacred, this tent of meeting, the what could be, and they would experience the what could be, the possibilities of what could be, and then they would get a taste of that, and then have such a desire to have that, they would take that out with them and begin to transform the space around them, to begin to transform the common space into a sacred space. So for the priest, everything they did was holy. Everything they did is sacred, which means if you're going to have an entire nation of priests, then the goal is to eventually blur the lines between the sacred and the common. If the goal is to have an entire nation of priests, then it means that, that you, you want to have an entire nation of people that live their lives in the common with the view that all of it is sacred and holy. The goal is to develop this entire nation of people who are living with a more expanded and sacred vision for all of life, right? So uh, the priest, the priest lives with this bit of tension, the what is and the what could be. Uh, and this can be a very difficult thing as a priest stepping into a priestly role because the priest outside of the role, the priest in, in, in and am amongst him, the priest himself, that guy, the priest himself outside of the role is actually just an ordinary person, Okay, so let's talk about the ordinary. We've talked about you got to start somewhere, the tension. Let's talk about the ordinary. Um, we said that in order for everyone to be a priest, somebody has to be a priest. When you look at the first someones, Aaron and his sons, 
We're not given any like really details about why he's picked. As far as we know, there's nothing really special about him. Uh, if you look at the passage, Leviticus chapter eight, it says, the Lord said to Moses, bring Aaron and his sons. That's like, we don't have a further description about why. Uh, in other places in the Bible, when God picks somebody, we're given a description why. If you look at like Saul and David, uh, first, first um, uh, where are we? First Samuel 9, talking about Saul. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than everyone else. But first Samuel 16, talking about David, he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Right, so there's always these descriptors, descriptive words. But then when it comes to Aaron and his sons, it's just like, God's like, yeah, they're not doing much. It's, they know, they're your brother, that's your brother, he needs a job, okay, let's bring him in on this whole thing. There, there's no like pointing towards he's bigger, stronger, faster, more holy, more wise, more in tune with the teachings of God. It's just, he's there. Like last week we mentioned... Like, that's kind of the beauty of this whole thing of, uh, about the priesthood. That's the beauty. Uh, last week we talked about Aaron after, like, his first week on the job. He comes out and he blesses the people, right? And it's like, well, who does he think he is? He's somehow better than everybody now that he can now summon the blessings of God amongst the people. Well, no, 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 no. But that's, that's kind of the point. That's kind of the, the, the beauty of, of the whole thing. Like, it's the insignificance that becomes significant, it's prior to this moment, he's just another guy from just another tribe. He's just a very average person. And yet now he becomes the high priest. And then from this moment on, the entire tribe of the Levites is like the priestly tribe. So it's not because they were anything special that they get chosen for the role to be special, which is what makes it special. He takes the ordinary and he begins to elevate the ordinary. That's what makes it so incredible. What's significant about choosing this guy is the lack of significance. Have you ever had somebody speak into your life or speak over your life, right? Like they said something to you and you believed it, right? I see something great in you. I see so much potential. I know you can exceed. I know you can excel. I know you can do these things. And those words weren't just words. Like they were something that was this thing that like sank deep into your being and took up residence in who you are and like that began to transform how you think and live in the world. Well, who are they? Who are, well, they're just another person. They're just an ordinary, regular person. But in that moment, they stepped into that role and they said that thing and they became this priestly person for you and they revealed to you what you could become. They revealed to you a thing about you that was there the whole time but you just didn't see it. And in that moment, they step into the priestly role, right? The beauty of the priestly role is the ordinary nature of the one who inhabits it. And how it's in that role that they become the extraordinary. So the insignificance is significant. Now, the person that's in the role of the priest, okay, is the ordinary that is now elevated within the role. The role of the priest is to take the ordinary and to elevate it as well. 
right? It's kind of cool. So the person in the role is the ordinary that's been elevated, and now in that role, his job is to take other ordinary things and to elevate them as well. So let's talk about the elevation of the ordinary. For the priest, all of life is elevated. Every aspect of everything matters. And what we see in chapters 8 and 9 in in Leviticus is that these guys are set aside, and every aspect of what they do has a heightened sense of meaning and purpose. So in the instructions in chapter 8, there's a lot of details about their clothes and their bodies and what they eat, and it's all now given to the service of something bigger than themselves. It isn't, all these instructions aren't about well, here's how you get through life. Like it's this drudgery, like it's this task of like great burden. No, 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 this is, we're using these guys, they've been set aside and everything they do is to show everyone else what a new ordering of the world will look like up close and personal, right? Leviticus is packed full of details and and it's easy for us to get caught up in this and to get very bored with the details, but the details are important because the details are what lead us to the elevation of the everyday, in fact, there's a guy, uh, Admiral William McRaven. He spoke about this uh, a couple years ago. He did a graduation speech at the University, University of Texas, and he talked about the importance of details. Maybe you've seen this. It has been around for a bit, but uh, the importance of details that he learned in his like, military training. Okay, take a look at this. Every morning in SEAL training, my instructors, who at the time were all Vietnam veterans, would show up in my barracks room And the first thing they'd do was inspect my bed. If you did it right, the corners would be square, the covers would be pulled tight, the pillow centered just under the headboard, and the extra blanket folded neatly at the foot of the rack. It was a simple task, mundane at best, but every morning we were required to make our bed to perfection. It seemed a little ridiculous at the time, particularly in light of the fact that we were aspiring to be real warriors, tough, battle-hardened SEALs, But the wisdom of this simple act has been proven to me many times over. If you make your bed every morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. It will give you a small sense of pride, and it will encourage you to do another task, and another, and another. And by the end of the day, that one task completed will have turned into many tasks completed. Making your bed will also reinforce the fact that the little things in life matter. If you can't do the little things right, you'll never be able to do the big things right. And if by chance you have a miserable day, you will come home to a bed that is made, (laughs) that you made. And a made bed gives you encouragement that tomorrow will be better. So if you want to change the world, start off by making your bed. If you want to change the world, start by, what did he talk about? The corners square, the covers pulled tight, the pillows centered just under the headboard, the extra blanket folded at the rock. Every morning, the bed made to perfection. It seems, he mentioned, but it seems so ridiculous. This guy is training to be an elite warrior, like, in the world, and, and the first things they're taught is, here's how to make your bed. In what situation in the combat world is that going to play a factor, right? Like, well, it doesn't make... But what did he say about the details? The details are important because if you can't get the little things right, you'll never get the big things right. If you want to change the world, start by making your bed. So this small thing done with attention and excellence and detail speaks to what is possible, right? The world around me may be a mess, but this thing, this moment, this thing that I did, it's not. 
It speaks to what's possible. It speaks to how things can be different. This seemingly mundane task becomes much, much more important. So this everyday thing now takes on a whole new layer, a whole new meaning of of significance for us. And, And this is why, really for me, this is why I let my wife make the bed every morning so she can experience the elevation of the everyday, and I don't want to rob her of that joy. Yay! And the, <laughs> the men said, yay. The women said, boo. Bad joke. I do the dishes. <clears throat> so, not that we divide tasks. It doesn't, anyways, so what we see with these priests, all about the attention to detail. This goes here, that goes there. Do this thing this way, do that thing that way. Because it all points to the idea that there can be a whole new way to order the world. And if we can do all that, if we can, if we can get the tent of meeting right, if we can get the rituals right, then that will carry over to the, uh, into the camp because the goal is to take the sacred into the common so the common will be transformed into the sacred If we can get the small things right, then maybe we can get the big things, like a reordering of the world right as well. Now, what's interesting about this idea is that oftentimes when it comes to people's faith and spirituality and religion and all this stuff, there's this common thought that the goal is for us, like, to tolerate this place as long as we can until we can get out of this, right? To leave this world behind, that that we're just strangers passing through, which is essentially to say that this material world is of little to no value and is of little to no consequence. But what you see through the book of Leviticus is like the opposite of that entire way of thinking. It's all of the details that they're instructed and given to do within the material realm, within this material world that God has created, that as they engage the material things of this world, they begin to encounter the presence of God. Isn't that fascinating? Do this like this, do this like this, do this like this, and then the Lord will appear to you. So it's with their interaction of the physical realm that they find themselves in that they uncover and discover the presence of God. Pour oil on this, take the ashes from the wood, take the animal hide and do this. It's all about finding the divine, finding God through interaction with the material, not about removing themselves from the material world for the sake of getting somewhere else. It's about finding God as you interact with and engage the material and tangible realities of the world that we live in. It's pretty fascinating. So the details become important because they lead to this elevation of the everyday. You begin to elevate your life. When you begin to elevate your life, this is when real change begins, right? You want to change your life, start with the details. You want to form a new people group, start with the details. You want to transform a civilian into a warrior, you start with the details because the details matter. You want to elevate your life, start by, you know, like going through the drunk drawer, uh, cleaning out the closet, brushing your teeth the proper number of times, sitting down when you eat, taking the time to eat properly. Right, so when it seems all these instructions are super repetitive and hyper-detailed and, and they're trying to bore us to death, that's not what they're trying to do. They're trying to teach us that what you do matters. Every detail of your life matters if, and, and, and can have, there's potential for depth and meaning. Like you want to change your life, you want to live a better life, start with the small things, really, really small. Now, another thought about this priestly role. Have you ever considered the idea, like the whole idea and concept that there even are priests, it's like a giant risk. Right? So let's talk about risk and reward. I mean, it's, it's a really dicey sort of thing. The beauty and the strangeness of this whole concept is that the core of Leviticus is normal, everyday people, Aaron and his sons. God says, get Aaron. We don't know much about him. We don't. And then he entrusts these guys 
with a vision for the creation of this new sort of world, that they would be the ones to teach everyone else what this looks like. And then once everyone else gets a hold of it, they are to go out and to do the same so that as they learn from the priest, then they take on the priestly role to teach others about what this can look like because we talked about this whole thing continues to expand. But think about what this means. Think about what this means and what this teaches us and what this points to about the nature of God and who he is. God apparently has great hopes for humanity and for the world that we live in, and yet he entrusts these everyday people to carry out his plan. Do you see any problems with this? Right? Like apparently God is okay. He's perfectly fine with handing responsibility to normal everyday people for the future and the sake of humanity and the world. I mean, think about, <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of mind-blowing, but when you, when you look at the overall story of the Bible, doesn't this seem to be the case from like the very, very beginning? You go back to the book of Genesis, and how does that story start? God creates all things, then he creates man, and then he says, here, I'm giving you the responsibility to guide and shape and direct this and to take it into the future. And then he gives humanity free will, which then, it, which then means we get to choose if we're going to accept that responsibility. Right? We get to choose. We can take this thing and take it in, in this new creation, take it new, beautiful, wonderful sort of directions, or we can like use our freedom to do the opposite. And the, there's a chance here, there's a risk here that they could do the opposite and make a real big mess of things, which they did. Now, what's even more incredible is that even after the garden, you look at what's going on here in Leviticus, and you get behind the story a little bit, and what you see is it's almost like God's going, yeah, I, I know you made a mess of things, but let's try again. This time I'm gonna give you these priests, and these priests are gonna teach you what it looks like, and then you guys are gonna take this responsibility and go out and t tell everybody else about it, show everybody else about it. I mean, like, this is a risky thing. Apparently, God is okay with risk. This is a bit like um, breakfast at my house. Speaking of risky things, this is a bit like breakfast at my house. So uh, every morning, uh, not every morning, if dad is doing breakfast, uh, typically we have cereal. Their mom cares more about them. So uh, every morning the kids get up, I set out three bowls for the three kids, Ella, Ezra, and Elias. We pour the bowls of cereal, one, two, three. We get the milk out, pour the milk. And then one by one, they come and they grab the bowl. Ella, she takes her bowl, no problem. She's seven, eight now, doesn't, doesn't bother me. Uh, Ezra, our five-year-old, he takes his bowl, he walks to the table. And then there's Elias, <laughs> our three-year-old. Uh, who's a little bit wild and who uh, doesn't pay attention so good. And so normally I take his bowl and I set it on the table for him and I say, here you go, buddy. But on one particular day a couple weeks ago, he said, Dad, I can do it. So we poured the bowls and the other two kids take theirs that he wants to emulate his big brother and his big sister. And so he says, Dad, I can do it. And I said, I'm just not sure about that, buddy. And he said, no, Dad, I'm big enough. I'm big enough. And I said, buddy, I just don't think this is a good idea. He goes, but yes, I can, Dad. Yes, I can. So finally, I relented. Now, this is a big moment because this is very risky. This is very risky because there's a good chance, 
I mean, a really, really high probability that this whole thing could go sideways because he could drop it at any minute and there could be milk and cereal everywhere and you know who would have to clean it up? I would. So the simple fact, me contemplating this thing is a risky move because I'm not sure how he's gonna handle this responsibility. But on that particular day, I was feeling a little wild and I said, sure, why not? So he takes the bowl, I place it in his hands, and he takes the bowl, and he turns, and I said, buddy, you gotta go slow, and you need to pay attention. You need to be very careful. And so he began to do baby steps, walking like this, just very, I'm like, well, you don't have to go that slow, but he's walking like this, and then what's the kid do? First thing, he starts to turn like this, right, and look back at me, and then all of a sudden he starts veering toward the cabinet. I'm like, buddy, turn around, and then he turns like this, and then we spill a little bit of the milk, and he keeps going, and then the dog bumps into him, we get a little more spilled milk, and then eventually he makes it to the table. And he goes, see, Dad, I could do it. I could do it, and I said, buddy, I am so proud of you. Right, because in that moment, we took this risk, and when he accomplished this thing, when he got to there, you could see the pride, you could see the glowing like sense of accomplishment, like I've done it, I've accomplished something, and I just, if you're a parent, you've experienced this. Anytime you see your kid cross a milestone, anytime you see your kid wake up and they get it, anytime you see your kid like actually like, like accomplishing something on their own, and they get that sense of pride in themselves, like it's just this thing that washes over you, that it's like an undescribable sort of thing. And so I just leaned into him and I'm just like so proud, you know, like, I'm like, buddy, that is so amazing. I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. You know, when you look at the story of these people wandering through the desert, even you go back to the beginning of Genesis and, and God says, here, I want, you to, I want you to do this. Here's the responsibility. I'm gonna give you the responsibility to carry this thing forward and we make a mess of it. And then we see in Leviticus, you have this whole, whole temple idea. They're creating this new world and what does he do? He creates these priests who he says, here, I want you to take this. And there's a chance that they may make a mess of it. Right? And what we see over and over and over is it's God insisting that I'm going to entrust these people with all their faults, all their failures, all their flaws to move this thing forward. We get to look at this story from a distance. When we get to see their journey along the way, we get to see the bits of spilled milk. We get to see the times that they fail because we're looking at the story. But then there's moments along the way where they get it, where they wake up. There's moments like in the United Kingdom, or the kingdom that's united, and they're, and they're doing the things that God, and they're in the promised land, and it's like these beautiful moments that they're, they're actually doing it, and it's like, yes, they finally are getting a handle on it. Right? Or, or maybe it's like for us, like we, we, we have these moments in our lives where we have the potential to make a mess of things, and sometimes we do, and we make a giant mess out, and sometimes we get it. Sometimes we get it. Sometimes we do the right things, and then sometimes we spill a little along the way, and then eventually we get to the table, and we set it there, and I picture our Heavenly Father looking at us with a great sense of joy and pride, and yes, I know you spilt the milk. Yes, I know that was a thing that happened, but you know what? My son I am still very proud of you. You know what, my daughter? I am still 
very proud of you. He may even say something like, well done, good and faithful servant. You did it. Yes, you made a little mess. Yes, there was some spilt milk, but you did it. What a beautiful thing to be a part of you. There's this huge risk that's built into all of it, but there's also this great reward. Imagine your heavenly Father watching you as you wake up in these moments, watching you as you accomplish, as you do the things, as you live the proper, as you follow the, as you as you bring reconciliation and as you bring heaven to earth, in just the pride that He will have at His children, saying. They did it. They did it. Like, what a beautiful thing to be a part of, that we get to participate in this thing. God has entrusted us to carry this thing on. We get to participate in the ongoing, unfolding development of all of creation. We get to participate in bringing heaven to earth. What a beautiful thing to be a part of. Mess and all. I mean, do you realize what this is? Right, like at, the, at its heart, like what this story even in Leviticus is. At, at the heart of Leviticus, this is a gospel message. Well, this can't be the gospel. Seth, you're in the Old Testament. You're not in the New Testament. You haven't talked about Jesus, and you haven't talked about like sin and repentance and baptism and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But think about this. Think about this. Okay, where, what does the word gospel mean? Gospel means good news. Where do we get that word? It comes from the Greek New Testament, euangelion. Euangelion is the Greek word for good news. It was actually used in the Roman Empire. It was like its primary like, originality. And so the Roman, like the Caesars of Rome, they would use this, this word, this euangelion. They would make these great proclamations anytime the kingdom did something good. We've taken over another country, peace through victory. They would send out this euangelion. It's a Caesar's birthday. Let's, it's good news. Let's send out this euangelion, this proclamation to all the people. And then so Jesus comes along and then his, uh, the, the authors of the New Testament come along and they begin to take that word, the good news, the euangelion that was used for the kingdom of Rome, the empire, and they begin to apply that to the kingdom and the teachings of Jesus. They begin to apply it to, to the good news of Jesus, which is that God had sent his son to liberate and redeem humanity, to invite them, to invite us through him into a whole new way to live and be in the world. And through the life of Jesus, who has now become the high priest, he is the one teaching us and showing us how to live. And then through the death of Jesus, we have now been freed from the oppression of sin and death so that we can now have this ongoing eternal relationship with God. When you look at that story, and then you begin to look at this story in the Old Testament about these people, Exodus, Leviticus, the whole story, the story is God liberating the people from this oppression of this physical slavery, not a spiritual slavery, a physical slavery, and then giving them these priests to teach them a whole new way to live and order the world. And then when they live and move in this sort of way, then now they are able to have this proper relationship and experience with God. Do you see, like this story and this story, kind of, this one's like a, it's like a foreshadowing for the story, the ordering of the New Testament. Like, hey, hey, guess what? This thing that you're seeing right now will be made even better and more complete over here. Because this time it won't, or this, this new time in the New Testament, it's not going to be about a physical bondage. It's going to be about a spiritual bondage that's bigger than you can even comprehend. So, you see, any time you have people being set free from anything, it's good news. Anytime you have people waking up to the idea that things can actually be different through Jesus, 
It's good news. Anytime you have a way for people to step into a new and profound sense of freedom that God intended us to have and to maintain that relationship, it's good news. Right? And so what's great about the gospel of Jesus is that not only are we invited to step into this redemption, to this salvation, but then we are given these instructions that then we should take this good news with us wherever we go. He entrusts us with the good news that we should take it into all the world. He entrusts us with all our faults, all our failures, all the messes we've made, all the messes we will make, and he still takes a chance on you. The good news is in your hands. The gospel of Jesus, that through his death, burial, and resurrection, we can be brought out of the slavery of sin and death. And the good news about the good news is that you have been invited by this high priest to step into this priestly role wherever you go and through everything you do so that now you may be the one putting the good news on display. Do you see? It's all the gospel the idea is that whether we're talking about the Old Testament or the New Testament, that God keeps taking this risk. God continues to rescue. God continues to teach us, here's how to live. God continues to entrust us to guide and shape the future through how we live in this world. So the challenge for us today, I mean, it's the same as it was last week, isn't it? Like, what kind of priest will you be? What kind of priest will you be? Right? And this whole thing expands. It starts with the group of priests in the tabernacle so that they would influence and affect, they would take the sacred into the common. And then the idea, the goal was that all of the common would become this entire nation of priests so that then they would go into the common and begin to teach others about what this looks like. And then you look at the story of Jesus and we have the same thing. We have Jesus who becomes the high priest who has taught his disciples who have become the other priests who are then teaching others, who are teaching others, who are inviting more and more people into this new way to live and be in the world. Right? What a beautiful, beautiful thing. So the challenge for us is what kind of priest will you be? Will you be the kind of priest who gets so focused on how great you are at following all the details that you forget that the role of the priest isn't actually about you? Or will you be the kind of priest that shows the love, the grace, the mercy, the kindness of the good news that sits at the heart of the gospel message? Will you be the kind of priest that insists through how you live that rescue and redemption for all things and all people is possible. Because if that's the way you go, if that's the choice you make, then that, my friends, that's the good news, that you have stepped into redemption and salvation that is possible through Jesus Christ, and that now you are helping others to do the same. That's the good news. Today we celebrate the good news. We celebrate that God has loved us, loved you so much that he sent his son to rescue you from the bondages of the slavery, the oppression of sin and death that we face. That through his son Jesus, we have been set free from these things. So we have these stations on the side, a gluten-free option in the back. If you cannot get up, raise your hand and someone will come to you. This is our time of communion. 
And we take this bread and we take this juice and it reminds us of the body and the blood of Jesus. It reminds us that there is somebody that loves and cares you enough, cares about you enough, that they would do anything for you. It reminds us that through this ritual, through this ceremony, through this process, we take this in amongst ourselves. And then we get reminded that there is a new order of things, that things don't have to be as they are. In fact, that that's why Jesus came. We get to be reminded that we can step into a mercy, a grace, a forgiveness, a freedom that we may not have known otherwise. It reminds us that through him, we now can have the proper relationship with God.